Good morning. My name is Pastor Clint. I serve as family pastor here at Faith Church. And if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Genesis chapter 23. You can make your way to Genesis 23. That's where we'll get started here in just a moment. And as you make your way over, let me start out by mentioning, and maybe you can relate to this in your own life, that one thing I loved, particularly as a child, was movie trailers. I don't know if that's true for you, but that marketing was just very effective on me. Something about slicing together the best scenes, I would tell my parents, we have to see it. I was probably eight years old when a trailer for a new Batman movie came out, and my little Clint brain exploded. I mean, it, it rocked my world. I was so excited because that smaller experience strengthened my anticipation for the fuller thing. We actually just sang about a foretaste of deliverance, a foretaste, a present small experience that points us forward to the full meal. And we have that in our relationship with God. We have present experiences with God, which are meaningful for us in this moment, but they also prepare us for what's coming in the future. Here's our main idea today, because this is the main focus we'll see across these chapters. God's present faithfulness should strengthen our faith in his promises. Today we're going to look at Genesis chapter 23, chapter 24, and the first 11 verses of 25. And the reason why we're covering this larger portion is because today we're concluding this stretch of our series in Genesis. Remember, we did the first 11 chapters at the beginning of last year, covered chapters 12 through 25 today, this year, and we will pick it back up at the beginning of next year. And this stretch from 12 to 25 has covered the life of Abraham. In fact, it started with the Abrahamic covenant that we've discussed many times where God made his particular promise to Abraham. And over the ensuing chapters, we have seen God faithful to keep that promise, even when Abram and Sarah and others were faithless. And we're going to see that continued even now in these final chapters of Abraham's life. And it will be instructive for us because God's faithful to us too. We'll look at each chapter as a section. So we're going to start with chapter 23 with this idea, which is that we receive comfort and security from God's faithfulness. And it is a blessing that we do because of our present need for comfort. Let's read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Our story starts out in a bit of a sad place, which is that Sarah passes away. So Abraham is in mourning over the loss of his wife. You know, sometimes in these narratives, cultural differences make it difficult to relate to characters. But in this case, Abraham is deeply human. He is facing a, a universal challenge, which is the reality of death, the reality of suffering. It's a hard place for us to start, but it starts out showing us that we do need comfort, don't we? 
Abraham was in need of being comforted. He was facing real, actual pain. I don't have to convince you that we need comfort, that we face real, actual pain, that we specifically face death. And so one question, just to get us started today, is where do we find our comfort from? I mean, many of the issues in our society, I think we could tie it to attempts to dull pain, attempts to find comfort, attempts to escape all of the challenges and the suffering that are inevitable in the human experience. What makes the Christian life different, and here's where it's a sad start but also a hope-filled start for us as we get into these texts, is if you are a Christian here this morning, we have a real reason for comfort. Our very present need for comfort is met with the very present faithfulness of God. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 that we can cast our cares on him for a very compelling reason. He cares for us. Personally known, personally loved by the sovereign God. He is caring for us. I don't know what pain or suffering you bring in to this morning, to this experience, where you're at, but know that God is caring for you that your present need for comfort has a solution in the faithful God, that he secures you, he secures me, and he secured Abraham. Now, in the rest of this chapter, it's going to talk about land negotiations, thrilling stuff, but we're still going to look at it briefly because through it, we're going to make some additional connections here to God's faithfulness. So our second point here in verses 3 through 20 is God's promise of future comfort. Let's just walk through what happens in this section, and then we'll bring out a few implications on the back end. So the text opens with Abraham making a request of the Hittites. Let's read verses 3 and 4. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I might bury my dead out of my sight. Abraham is asking for land to bury Sarah. And he's asking of these individuals who live in this land, but he's a foreigner. But we find in verse 6, they respond favorably. Say, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. They extend to Abraham, this foreigner, this wonderful response. They say, our land is yours. We respect you. You are a prince of God. You can have whatever you'd like. So he presses a little further. He goes to a particular Hittite named Ephron, and he asks about his land. Because Ephron has this field, and in this field is the cave of Machpelah, which apparently Abraham desired as an ideal tomb to bury Sarah in. So he offers to purchase it, and Ephraim responds in verse 11, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And this kind offer from Ephraim kicks off a series of negotiations where Abraham keeps saying, no, I'll purchase it. I'm willing to buy this actual field. And Ephraim sort of goes back and forth saying, no, I'll give it to you or it doesn't have to be that much. And it's a little hard to tell whether Ephraim actually wants to give it to him for free or if this is just a very gracious way to negotiate. In either case, 
Abraham buys the field. He's able to get the tomb he's after. So look at the conclusion of verses 17 and 19, which sort of ties this all together for us. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the story essentially just tells us that Abraham buys this tomb. He now has this field. But what can we learn from this quick story, this quick narrative about negotiation? Well, three things I want to bring out for us. Here's the first. A godly reputation glorifies God. Notice that these people in this land have respect for Abraham. They call him a prince of God. They are willing to work with him. Now, we're not going to make the mistake here of making Abraham the hero of the story. We've seen Abraham at his best. We've seen him at his worst. He's a sinner like you and I. And yet, he still is a pattern for behavior. Because remember, God attributed righteousness to Abraham, a man of faith. And here we see a man of faith who is emanating the faithfulness of God to these people. Like a mirror, when God blesses Abraham, it it just bounces out and people see it. And when people see our Christ-likeness, it glorifies God. Do we represent to the world around us, our Savior, the way that Abraham did when he traveled into this land? Here's a second implication, is that God's provision is a source of present comfort. Remember, Abraham needed comfort, and God, in his kindness, gave him what he desired here. This isn't a promise that God in his provision just takes away all this pain. Abraham, Sarah was, had still passed. Abraham was still mourning. He still had to deal with the difficulty of that. And yet, God's kindness in providing this field and this tomb was a reminder that his God cared for him. And it is a Christian habit, a Christian discipline for you and I to observe the daily kindnesses of God and to respond to them, to be comforted by them. Is that how you respond when you see God's provision in your life? Is it a source of comfort to you Does it remind you that you serve a faithful God who will keep you through the pain and difficulty of life? And a third final implication from this section, our present comfort points to future comfort. And here's where we need to observe something cool that's going on here in chapter 23, which is that we find at the beginning and end of this chapter that this land is in Canaan which means Abraham just purchased some promised land. God is already fulfilling his promise to bring his people into the land he has for them. Now, we are far from God fully fulfilling this promise. He's going to bring Joshua across the Jordan River. They're going to come into the land. They're going to destroy all these opposing nations. All of that's still coming. And yet here you have a little foretaste of it, a little bit of partial fulfillment, a little bit of God's present faithfulness that shows us, reminds us, that God's going to keep all of his promises. That's what God's faithfulness should do for us. And if we think about that in terms of comfort, 
The present provision of comfort for Abraham is just a reminder that someday he will take away all tears. He will take away all suffering. God's comfort will be complete and total and full. May we look forward to that day. We receive comfort and security from God's faithfulness. Be secured this morning. Be stabilized by the faithful God who is with you today. And his presence is a reminder that you will be with him forever. Let's turn now to chapter 24. This is a fuller, longer story, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time in it. And we'll see this second point. We should respond in faith and obedience to God's faithfulness. What we're going to do across this story is see a number of characters walking out the the plot of what happens here, and as they do so, they all respond to God, and they're going to be a pattern for you and I. As we think about this morning, how do we respond to God and His faithfulness? Here's the first response in verses 1 through 9. Respond to God's faithfulness by believing his word. Let's read the first verse of chapter 24. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Okay, just two sentences into chapter 24, do you see God's faithfulness? Remember in chapter 12 when God said he was going to bless Abraham? And now Abraham, at the end of his life, he's looking around, and what does he see? God has kept his promise. God always does what he says he will do. Always. And this is true in Abraham's life, and this This is going to animate Abraham's next decision, his belief in God, because God has proven to Abraham that his word is reliable. That is a word you can believe. And so Abraham develops a plan Because he believes this word. Let's read verses 2 through 4 to see Abraham's plan here. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac." Abraham here develops a plan to find a wife for his son Isaac. And frankly, the plan's kind of weird. Doesn't it seem a little odd? He takes a servant, says, you're going to travel back to where I come from, my old home, where my family was, and you're going to find some young lady who seems like an ideal bride for my son, convince her to come back and marry Isaac sight unseen. Again, it's a little weird. But we're going to see that this is more than some random chance, some, more than some bizarre courting method that Abraham has developed here. There's a little more going on, but let's first discuss this servant he's talking to. We discover he's the oldest of the household. He's the one who has authority over everything. And keep in mind, Abraham has a lot of stuff. It's a big household. And so this was a trusted second-in-command, and he's being entrusted now with a crucial mission. But this mission is not random. No, it's actually built upon the foundation of God's reliable word. Let's read verse 7. Notice what Abraham says. He says, the Lord, the God of heaven, 
who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham is basing his actions on God's covenant to him. Remember, God had promised he would have this great nation, and he promised that there would be a particular offspring, and the promises would continue through that offspring. This is why, over the last several chapters, we had been anticipating a son, Isaac. And this is why a week ago, when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, it was such a stunning command. He said, but, but, but God, the promise will go through the offspring. But as Pastor Mike brought out, Abraham said, okay, God, I'm just going to see you provide. And he obeyed, and God provided. Well, now he's doing the same thing, because if this offspring promise is going to be fulfilled, then Isaac needs a wife, because he's going to have a son. So once again, Abraham is saying, okay, God, I'm going to see you fulfill your promise. Abraham believes the promise. And he's going to see what God will do. Do you believe God's word like that? Do you believe the promises of God with such certainty that it emboldens your faith-filled action every day? Proactivity? I mean, the question that hung over Abraham's life over and over again was, will he believe the promise? Will he believe the promise? Will he believe the promise? And in Egypt, he didn't. And with Isaac, he does. And with Abimelech, he didn't. And with Melchizedek, he does. And he goes back and forth. And now for you and I, we have the same question. Because if you are a believer today, it is because of the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins. But as we celebrated so specifically a week ago, Christ was resurrected raising us to new life in him, which means we now await an inheritance. We have a promise that he will give us eternity with him. So brothers and sisters, do you believe the promise? Will you believe the promise? Let's move to a second response to the faithfulness of God, which is prayer. In verse 10, the servant makes the trip. He takes this whole group and at least 10 camels, apparently, takes them all the way back to this home where Abraham was from. And then we find in verse 11, he sets up next to a well at the time when women go out to draw water. In other words, he's being strategic. He finds the ideal location where he'll intersect with potential brides for Isaac. Finds the right place. He knows that at this time, in this culture, young women will come out and draw water, and so he's prepared. But before he goes a step further, he prays. Let's read his prayer in verses 12 through 14. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please, let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. I'd like us to just take a quick pause here in the narrative and observe a few aspects of this prayer 
which I think are a helpful pattern for us in our own prayer lives. Here's the first. Prayer is dependence upon God. There's a clear reason why the servant's praying. He needs help. He wants God to help him with an admittedly difficult task. This is proof that he is not self-sufficient. He is not depending upon himself to perfectly work this out. He needs God's help for it. That is actually how all prayer works. All prayer is acknowledgement that we're not in control. And it's acknowledgement that God is in control. It is in its very act dependent upon the God who runs the universe. And this is proven. It's proven that it's dependency when you see people pray who in other situations wouldn't. Let me explain what I meant by that. I just heard an interview from a Hollywood actor who was talking about how he was on a set when 9-11 happened, and he said he immediately prayed with all the cast and crew. And he was laughing. He said, I don't even believe in God. But he was helpless. He was desperate. It was a moment of crisis. And in that moment, he said, I need a higher power to help. But for you and I, who know this higher power personally, who trust in him and are dependent upon him, how much more should we move in prayer to God? One quick way to assess your own self-sufficiency is, do you pray? When you come up to an experience like this where you're called upon to obey, to do something challenging, is it a natural impulse for you, like the servant, to stop and pray? A second aspect of prayer we learn from the servant is that prayer empowers our faith-filled obedience. I find it particularly helpful in this story that the servant is strategic. He's proactive. He makes a difficult trek all the way here. He then thinks cleverly about where to go. He sets up in an ideal location. In other words, for the servant, he doesn't see prayer as permission to disengage. Rather, he intentionally works hard, and then after all of his effort and all of his strategy, and he's got the whole plan up on the whiteboard, he's got it all figured out, He then says, God, please help me. I need you. I am totally dependent upon you. In other words, in our own prayer lives, there's maybe two extremes. There's that self-sufficient, I don't pray, I got this, God, I don't need you, which we know is wrong. And then there's a pray, sort of a let go, let God just sort of fall over, he'll take care of everything approach. And yet the Bible harmonizes them beautifully and says that we are called to be proactive, We're called to obey. We're called to pursue excellence. We're called to work under the Lord. And we bathe all of that in dependent, God, please help me, prayer. Is that your approach to obedience? Just pause now for a moment and consider that. Is that how I think through faith-filled obedience to God? Working unto the Lord to my best, but doing it all, knowing that I'm dependent upon my sovereign God. Third, prayer appeals to God's character. You find at least twice in this prayer, the servant mentions God's steadfast love to Abraham. In fact, he ends verse 14 saying, by this I shall know you have steadfast love to my master. The the servant is giving us language for how we appeal to God, and part of it is recognition of who God is. 
You see this throughout the Psalms, where he says, God, you are merciful, so please have mercy on me. And in this way, our prayers are expressions of faith in how God has revealed himself. I think sometimes it's an aspect of prayer that we don't always reflect well in our language. One way you could do this is if you were praying for the salvation of someone you know, you could say, Lord, you are mighty to save. You love to redeem your people. So please save this friend. Open his eyes to the gospel. This is just another aspect of how our prayer is faith applied. And let's move to a final, a final aspect of prayer, and then we will dive back in the narrative. But fourth, prayer involves supplication in submission to God's sovereignty. And I know that that's a mouthful, so let me walk through what I mean by that, and we'll, we'll see it here in his prayer. Supplication refers, of course, to requests. And the servant is clearly making a request. He's saying, God, please allow one of these women to be the bride for Isaac. In fact, he goes a little farther and says, can you also do it this way? Can she offer me water and then offer the camel's water? And it's definitely a request, which I think is encouraging because it shows us it is okay to ask requests of God. This is a necessary, important, biblically patterned part of our prayer lives. But also observe this supplication and submission to God's sovereignty. He says in verse 14, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. So the servant saying, God, please allow one of these women to be the bride, but let her be the one whom you have appointed. This is a very crucial point for our prayer. The servant's not trying to morph God's plan into his desires. He's submitting his desires to God's plan. That is how we pray. We offer up good desires, but what we desire, what we should desire, is what God wants. Jesus shows us this in the Lord's Prayer when he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we really buy into this ultimate submission to God, it it does impact our posture in prayer. Think about how we pray for the healing of a sick person we know. We might say, Lord, my request is that you'd heal this friend. But then we can press a little further and say, but Lord, whatever you will be done, whether it be that or something else, your plan is better because you are sovereign. Our supplication and submission to the sovereignty of God. May we take these these four patterns and add them to our own prayer this week. Let's move back into chapter 24 and continue to see these responses. Here's a third response. Respond to God's faithfulness by cultivating godly character. And our pattern for godly character is first going to be this new character, Rebecca. Now, the servant who's been praying, his prayer gets interrupted in verse 15. It says, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca. Wouldn't you love it if God always answered your prayer during your prayer? That would be ideal. Doesn't always work that way. But in this case, he's praying, and while he's praying, Rebecca shows up. So let's read this description of her in verses 16 through 20. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also, until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, 
and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. In this paragraph, we see that Rebecca perfectly fits the bill for what he's looking for. God in his providence has orchestrated these events to lead the servant right to Rebecca. First of all, we see she's attractive, which certainly doesn't hurt. But on top of that, she immediately serves this water. She shows her own character, her own willingness to serve him, to express generosity, to express kindness, and it fits the bill of what he prayed for. And on top of that, she offers to water the camels, which, remember, he's got at least 10 camels, so it's no small feat. This legitimately would have been a, a, a physical effort, and she would have been working her way down, watering all these camels, and the servant's observing this going, God, you, you answered my prayer already. You've already shown your faithfulness. Now, we should pause and comment that this text has long invited applications about, you know, being wife material, you know, being quick to serve, you know, how to find a spouse, all those kinds of things. A lot of those correlations, I, I think we have to be careful. They have a tendency to flatten out the real purpose of what God is doing here. Rather than this being application just for single women, I think there's application for all of us in our own cultivation of godly character like Rebecca and how that engages with the providence of God. You see, God is working out his plan. We know that because we've got more information than Rebecca. We know that God is fulfilling this promise that started back in chapter 12 and it led to Isaac and Rebecca's going to marry Isaac. It's all working out. But Rebecca doesn't know that, does she? She just shows up to this well and she does the right thing. And it's a model for you and I because typically speaking, we also don't have all the information. Sometimes we think we want that. We wish that we could see the whole chessboard and we knew exactly what God was doing and how he's weaving it all together and how it's going to end. But we don't. Otherwise, it wouldn't be faith, would it? Now, our responsibility is to be faithful to what God has put right in front of us, to have quiet lives of godly character. I remember when I played high school basketball, my coach used to say, only worry about what you can control. You know, because we, we get frustrated about the refs or about what the other team's doing. He said, only worry about your responsibility. And in a way, that's what the Christian life often looks like for us. We, we can't control God's sovereign plan, but we can be faithful to what God's put right in front of us. I mean, all of us will walk out these doors to something. God has put us in a place with particular people and particular responsibilities. Our tendency is to want to say, I, I, I don't like the particular context I'm given. My plan looked different. That's God's work. The way that we engage is by being faithful in that. May you and I be faithful today whatever God puts in front of us, in our own character. We also, however, see godly character patterned through the other character in the story, which is the servant, once again. Now, the way he responds to Rebecca is he asks if he can come to her father's household. He's going to pursue to see if, if she'll travel back with him. But before he goes anywhere, in verses 26 and 27, he thanks God. Let's read it. The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. The servant here is not confused about how this happened. 
He's not concerned about who to credit with this. He knows it's God. He knows this is the providence of God. He believes in God, and his response to seeing God work is gratitude and worship. Is that our response to God's providence? When we see God at work, when we see his provision, when we see his faithfulness, do we fall to our knees and say, God, thank you. I move to worship. This is part of the reason why we gather weekly and worship, because we have a week full of reasons to see God's faithfulness. We've seen his character over and over again, and we're moved to worship. And the servant here actually gives us a, a nice sort of sandwich of prayer, right? He prays beforehand, God, please help me. Show your steadfast love. And then afterward, he says, thank you, God. You showed your steadfast love. That is a great way for you and I to approach what God has for us, to pray for help beforehand, to worship God afterward. Are we thankful to God for what he has done for us? We'll have an opportunity even later in this message to reflect on what he has done for us. But let's for now move to a fourth response to God's faithfulness, which is selfless obedience. Now, Rebecca has two family members who are new characters in our story we need to meet briefly, her father Bethuel and her brother Laban. We meet Laban in verse 29, so let's read 29 and 30. Rebecca had a brother whose name is Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. Now, a quick word of explanation. What we learn from verse 30 is that the servant took some of the wealth that belonged to Abraham and he gave it to Rebekah. He put some treasure, some rings, some bracelets, stuff, some nice stuff on her arms as an act of courtesy. And Laban notices. He sees the ring and the bracelets. Now, this is a little moment of brilliant character exposition. The narrator doesn't say, hey, guys, Laban's really greedy. Rather, we just see him see the money, and then he gets really hospitable. He just rolls out the red carpet. He says, come on in. And it's evident that perhaps there's a selfish motivation operating in Laban. Perhaps he's trying to get something for himself. And if that's true, it contrasts powerfully with the servant. Because the servant's been selfless all the way through. And we're not going to read most of it because we just saw it, but the servant recounts the beginning of his journey to Bethuel and Laban. He comes to them in the household, and he tells them everything that happened. He recounts how Abraham sent him on this mission, how he prayed, how Rebekah came, and now where he is today. And he finishes his story in verses 48 and 49. So we will pick it up there. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. The servant now puts the ball in their court. He now leaves it up to them to determine, will Rebecca travel back and marry Isaac? And we'll see their response in just a moment. But I first want to identify one more time the positive pattern of this selfless servant. Of course, the selflessness is evident across the whole story, 
But notice here, even when he talks to them, he says, tell me your answer. Is the answer yes? Because then we're going to go. But if the answer is no, he's like, I'll turn to the right or to the left. In other words, if in this moment God had said, no, it's, it's actually not her, you know what the servant would have done? He's going to keep looking. He's going to keep believing. He's going to keep obeying. Even though he's tired, even though it's probably frustrating, he's going to keep submitting because he is selflessly obeying his master in selfless obedience to God. And this is a pretty good model for you and I. Are we obeying? Are we serving selflessly? And I even have to pause and chuckle as I say that because I look out and I see so many people who selflessly serve this church, who selflessly served me and my family. So this is just a reminder to us, keep going. Because one thing about selfless obedience is often no one knows about it, right? It's sort of inherent to it being selfless. It's not done for show. But consider this servant. We don't even know his name. I mean, he is a really impressive pattern of obedience. And yet his name was not recorded for people to appreciate for thousands of years. No, he he just continues in this anonymous fashion to obey God. And he would receive his reward. Let us keep going. Not for the praise of men, but for the praise of God. Let's look at the response, though, of Bethuel and Laban in our fifth response to God's faithfulness, which is submission to God's word. Submission to God's word. And that is exactly what they do. Let's read verses 50 and 51. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. This is an impressive response. Even Laban, I was just dragging Laban for being greedy. Even he responds correctly here. They both submit to what God has said. And try to put yourself in Bethuel's position. This is his daughter. Can you imagine sending off his daughter? I mean, in no other case would he agree to this, right? But it's God who spoke. In fact, he says there in verse 50, we can't even assess if it's bad or good. We're not even in a position of authority to say we like it or don't like it. The reality is God said it, so it must happen. That is true submission. Submission when it is difficult and uncomfortable. And we see the same thing from Rebecca. They ask Rebecca in verses 58. Let's look at 58, actually. It says, and they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. When we put ourselves in Bethuel's shoes, put yourself in Rebekah's shoes. And she says, I will go. I will submit to what God has said. She is leaving her family and she's leaving her home, which means she reminds us a lot of Abraham. And this is how our story started. God said to Abraham, leave your family, leave your home in submission to what I have said. And now Rebecca is given the same call and Rebecca responds the same way, in submission. And before we finish this section though, there's a reminder that we're responding to God's faithfulness, right? This is definitely submission to his word, but also submission to his faithfulness because This is what her family says to her before she leaves in verse 60. Verse 60 says, Our sister, may you become thousands of 10,000, and may your offspring possess the gate 
of those who hate him. Now, I don't know if this was a traditional thing to say in their culture. I don't know if they had heard this or gotten this back from somewhere, but this language is extremely similar to what you find in chapter 22, verse 17, where God's covenant promise to Abraham for an offspring is iterated. And so when we read this, and when Israelites for years read this account, they were supposed to see verse 60 and see that God was at work fulfilling his promise that God would extend this offspring promise through Isaac and through Rebekah. What an incredible word of comfort. Yes, you're about to do the most difficult thing you've ever done, but God is faithful. This is part of God's plan. What a wonderful distillation of faith for you and I. Prompt obedience and belief in what God has said and done. May we submit, even when it's hard, even when it is uncomfortable. I've been convicted lately about sharing the gospel and developing a relationship with particularly one of my neighbors. And often, one of my best opportunities to interact with this neighbor is I'll come back from work and he'll be working in his front yard. And I never want to. I always pull into the driveway and I'm feeling this sort of introverted, I'm tired and I'm hungry, I just want to go in the house, I don't want to talk to a stranger. And in that moment, I'm confronted with, am I going to submit to what God's leading me to do? Am I going to, in my conscience, before God, honor him by stepping out in faith? And you know, taking a few steps to the right and talking to my neighbor seems, is much easier than what Rebecca's called to do. So may I, may we submit. Let's conclude chapter 24 with a final response to the faithfulness of God. Respond to God's faithfulness with joyful satisfaction. This story has a happy ending. Let's read verses 63 to 67 to see how it concludes. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This story ends, again, sorry for another movie reference, but like a scene from a movie, doesn't it? I mean, you even have like a camera shift. You've got Isaac in the field seeing them afar off, and then it shifts to Rebecca, and she sees Isaac. So they're like coming towards each other. It's, it's good storytelling. And when they finally arrive, the servant, he sort of jumps in between them and excitedly tells the story. He's like, look what happened. God answered this prayer in the middle of my prayer. And they get married. And at that point, Isaac doesn't say, okay, perfect. That box is checked. We're good to go. No, he loves her. And he's comforted after the death of his mother. Which means in this particular case, God's plan and his providence and the way he fulfilled his promise led to joy for these people. Which is not insignificant. Because God could keep his promises however he wants to. He's God. The plan can end however God determines it will. But you know what God decided? He decided it would end with our joy. He decided that our satisfaction would be a promised aspect of the fulfillment of these promises. Praise God for that. 
And if that's true in the end, then we're also instructed throughout the Bible to respond in joy today at God's faithfulness. You ever think of joy that way? You know, it's a unique term, and sometimes we only think of it as a feeling or a response. And yet so often the Bible treats it as a command, as an expression of faith, as an act of our will in response to who God is. May we find joy in God today that only prepares us and points us towards the joy we'll have with him forever. Let us respond in all these different angles we've seen in chapter 24 to the faithfulness of God and faith and obedience. And let's now conclude with chapter 25. And a final point here as we think about God's faithfulness, which is that we will be preserved by God's faithfulness. The first 10 verses show the end of Abraham's life, and we see that we're preserved through God's blessing because God has certainly blessed Abraham. In the first few verses, you see his family. He has so many possessions and wealth, and we've actually seen God's faithfulness to him in each section. Remember in chapter 23, God already brought some land to Abraham, some of the promised land. In chapter 24, we just look through a long story where God's fulfilling the offspring family blessing. And now here in chapter 25, we just see blessing, that third promise. So all of the Abrahamic covenant culminating here at the end of Abraham's life, it is clear that God kept his promise. And he has preserved Abraham through difficulty, through ups and downs. And in verses 7 and 8, we see the end of his life. It says, these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. I'd like us to pause and ask, how has God blessed us? Can you, like Abraham, look around and see the blessing of God in your life? Really stop and think about it. And perhaps you see family like Abraham did. Perhaps you see resources like Abraham did. But the blessing you're preserved by is so much more than material. There are blessings you can find if you go and read Ephesians chapter 1 or remind yourself at the beginning of Romans chapter 5 and see the spiritual blessings that come with the gospel. We have been immensely blessed. We are preserved because we've been redeemed through Jesus Christ. And that leads us to our final point here, which is God's promise of future blessing. Back in verse 5, before Abraham died, we find that Abraham gives all that he had to Isaac. Think about that for a moment. Talk about an inheritance. Abraham took all of the covenant blessings divinely bestowed by God to him personally, and he said, here you go, Isaac. They're yours now. That's the inheritance he receives. And then verse 11, the last verse in our section, concludes this way. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahoy Roy. The blessing continues. God's faithfulness does not conclude with Abraham. No, God continues to be faithful in blessing Isaac, and he will bless Jacob, and he will bless through the tribes and establish Israel. He will bless King David, and it will culminate in Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, he will bless the nations. 
through the proclamation of the gospel, through Christ's finished work on the cross. And you and I, because of this blessing here that extended through Jesus, we enter into the promise. Now God's faithfulness, evident across these chapters and across Genesis 12 through 25, are not just interesting to us historically. We're not just looking back and going, wow, God was faithful to the Israelites. No, God's faithfulness to the Israelites means he's faithful to you and I. This is why we have hope. So when we read that God blessed Isaac, we are reminded that he has blessed us, that we will be in heaven with him forever, in the land, with the family, because we have been blessed. Praise God for his faithfulness. Praise God that his present faithfulness to you today, this morning, gives you hope for the future that it will continue to stabilize and comfort you right now, that you can respond to it through the power of the Spirit, and that ultimately it will preserve you until you experience the full meal of blessing. We look forward to that day. Amen. Let me close us in prayer.